Chapter forty two of the Vicar of Bullhampton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Vicar of Bullhampton by Anthony Trollope. Chapter forty two. Mr. Quickenham, Q.C. On the Thursday in Passion Week, which fell on the sixth of April, Mr. and Mrs. Quickenham came to Bullhampton Vicarage. The lawyer intended to take a long holiday four entire days, and to return to London on the following Tuesday, and Mrs. Quickenham meant to be very happy with her sister. "'It is such a comfort to get him out of town, if it's only for two days,' said Mrs. Quickenham, "'and I do believe he has run away this time without any papers in his portmanteau.' Mrs. Fenwick, with something of an apology in her tone, explained to her sister that she was especially desirous of getting a legal opinion on this occasion from her brother-in-law. "'That's mere holiday work,' said the barrister's anxious wife. "'There's nothing he likes so much as that. "'But it is the reading of those horrible long papers by gaslight. "'I wouldn't mind how much he had to talk, nor yet how much he had to write, "'if it wasn't for all that weary reading. "'Of course he does have juniors with him now, but I don't find that it makes much difference. "'He's at it every night, sheet after sheet, and though he always says he's coming up immediately, "'it's two or three before he's in bed.' Mrs. Quickenham was three or four years older than her sister, and Mr. Quickenham was twelve years older than his wife. The lawyer, therefore, was considerably senior to the clergyman. He was at the chancery bar, and after the usual years of hard and almost profitless struggling, had worked himself up into a position in which his income was very large and his labours never-ending. Since the days in which he had begun to have, before his eyes, some idea of a future career for himself, he had always been struggling hard for a certain goal— struggling successfully and yet never getting nearer to the thing he desired a scholarship had been all in all to him when he left school and as he got it a distant fellowship already loomed before his eyes that attained was only a step towards his life in london his first brief anxiously as it had been desired had given no real satisfaction as soon as it came to him it was a rung of the ladder already out of sight and so it had been all through his life as he advanced upwards making a business taking a wife to himself, and becoming the father of many children. There was always something before him which was to make him happy when he reached it. His gown was of silk, and his income almost greater than his desires, but he would fain sit upon the bench, and have at any rate his evenings for his own enjoyment. He firmly believed now that that had been the object of his constant ambition, though could he retrace his thoughts as a young man, he would find that in the early days of his forensic toils the silent, heavy, unillumined solemnity of the judge had appeared to him to be nothing in comparison with the glittering audacity of the successful advocate. He had tried the one, and might probably soon try the other, and when that time shall have come and Mr. Quickenham shall sit upon his seat of honour in the new law courts, passing long, long hours in the tedious labours of conscientious painful listening, then he will look forward again to the happy ease of dignified retirement, to the coming time in which all his hours will be his own, and then again when those unfurnished hours are there, and with them shall have come the infirmities which years and toil shall have brought, his mind will run on once more to that eternal rest in which fees and salary, honours and dignity, wife and children, with all the joys of satisfied success, shall be brought together for him in one perfect amalgam, which he will call by the name of heaven. In the meantime, he has now come down to Bullhampton to enjoy himself for four days, if he can find enjoyment without his law papers. Mr. Quickenham was a tall, thin man with eager grey eyes and a long, projecting nose, on which, his enemies in the courts of law were wont to say, his wife would hang a kettle, 
in order that the unnecessary heat coming from his mouth might not be wasted. His hair was already grizzled, and in the matter of whiskers, his heavy, impatient hand had nearly altogether cut away the only intended ornament to his face. He was a man who allowed himself time for nothing but his law-work, eating all his meals as though the saving of a few minutes in that operation were matter of vital importance, dressing and undressing at railroad speed, moving ever with a quick, impetuous step, as though the whole world around him went too slowly. He was short-sighted, too, and would tumble about in his unnecessary hurry, barking his shins, bruising his knuckles, and breaking most things that were breakable, but caring nothing for his sufferings either in body or in purse, so that he was not reminded of his awkwardness by his wife. An untidy man he was, who spilt his soup on his waistcoat, and slobbered with his tea, whose fingers were apt to be ink-stained, and who had a grievous habit of mislaying papers that were most material to him. He would bellow to the servants to have his things found for him, and would then scold them for looking. But when alone, he would be ever scolding himself because of the faults which he thus committed. A conscientious, hard-working, friendly man he was, but one difficult to deal with, hot in his temper, impatient of all stupidities, impatient often of that which he wrongly thought to be stupidity, never owning himself to be wrong, anxious always for the truth, but often missing to see it, a man who would fret grievously for the merest trifle, and think nothing of the greatest success when it had once been gained. Such a one was Mr. Quickenham, and he was a man of whom all his enemies and most of his friends were a little afraid. Mrs. Fenwick would declare herself to be much in awe of him, and our vicar, though he would not admit as much, was always a little on his guard when the great barrister was with him. How it had come to pass that Mr. Chamberlain had not been called upon to take a part in the cathedral services during Passion Week cannot here be explained, but it was the fact that when Mr. Quickenham arrived at Bullhampton, the canon was staying at the Privets. He had come over there early in the week, as it was supposed by Mr. Fenwick, with some hope of talking his nephew into a more reasonable state of mind respecting Miss Lowther. But according to Mrs. Fenwick's uncharitable views, with the distinct object of escaping the long church services of the Holy Week, and was to return to Salisbury on the Saturday. He was, therefore, invited to meet Mr. Quickenham at dinner on the Thursday. In his own city, and among his own neighbors, he would have thought it indiscreet to dine out in Passion Week, but, as he explained to Mr. Fenwick, these things were very different in a rural parish. Mr. Quickenham arrived an hour or two before dinner, and was immediately taken out to see the obnoxious building, while Mrs. Fenwick, who never would go to see it, described all its horrors to her sister within the guarded precincts of her own drawing-room. "'It used to be a bit of common land, didn't it?' said Mr. Quickenham. "'I hardly know what is common land,' replied the vicar. "'The children used to play here, and when there was a bit of grass on it, some of the neighbours' cows would get it.' "'It was never advertised to be let on building lease.' "'Oh, dear, no. Lord Trowbridge never did anything of that sort.' "'I dare say not,' said the lawyer. "'I dare say not.' Then he walked round the plot of ground, pacing it, as though something might be learned in that way. Then he looked up at the building with his hands in his pockets, and his head on one side. "'Has there been a deed of gift? Perhaps a peppercorn rent, or something of that kind?' The vicar declared that he was altogether ignorant of what had been done between the agent for the Marquis and the trustees to whom had been committed the building of the chapel. "'I dare say nothing,' said Mr. Quickenham. "'They've been in such a hurry to punish you that they've gone on a mere verbal permission. What's the extent of the glebe?' "'They call it forty-two acres.' "'Did you ever have it measured?' "'Never. It would make no difference to me whether it is forty-one or forty-three. "'That's as may be,' said the lawyer. "'It's as nasty a thing as I have looked at for many a day. "'But it wouldn't do to call it a nuisance.' 
of course not janet is very hot about it but as for me i've made up my mind to swallow it after all what harm will it do me it's an insult that's all but if i can show that i don't take it as an insult the insult will be nothing of course the people know that their landlord is trying to spite me that's just it and for a while they'll spite me too because he does of course it's a bore it cripples one's influence and to a degree spreads dissent at the cost of the church men and women will go to that place merely because lord trowbridge favours the building i know all that and it irks me but still it will be better to swallow it who's the oldest man in the parish asked mr quickenham the oldest with his senses still about him the parson reflected for a while and then said that he thought brattle the miller was as old a man as there was there with the capability left to him of remembering and of stating what he remembered and what's his age about fenwick said that the miller was between sixty and seventy and had lived in bullhampton all his life a church-going man asked the lawyer to this the vicar was obliged to reply that to his very great regret old brattle never entered a church then i'll step over and see him during morning service to-morrow said the lawyer the vicar raised his eyebrows but said nothing as to the propriety of mr quickenham's personal attendance at a place of worship on good friday can anything be done richard said mrs fenwick appealing to her brother-in-law yes undoubtedly something can be done can there indeed i am so glad what can be done you can make the best of it that's just what i'm determined i won't do it's mean-spirited and so i tell frank i never would have hurt them as long as they treated us well but now they are enemies and as enemies i will regard them i should think myself disgraced if i were to sit down in the presence of the marquis of trowbridge i should indeed you can easily manage that by standing up when you meet him said mr quickenham mr quickenham could be very funny at times but those who knew him would remark that whenever he was funny he had something to hide his wife as she heard his wit was quite sure that he had some plan in his head about the chapel at half-past six there came mr chamberlain and his nephew the conversation about the chapel was still continued and the canon from salisbury was very eloquent and learned also upon the subject his eloquence was brightest while the ladies were still in the room but his learning was brought forth most manifestly after they had retired he was very clear in his opinion that the marquis had the law on his side in giving the land for the purpose in question even if it could be shown that he was simply the lord of the manor and not so possessed of the spot as to do what he liked in it for his own purposes mr chamberlain expressed his opinion that although he himself might think otherwise it would be held to be for the benefit of the community that the chapel should be built and in no court could an injunction against the building be obtained but he couldn't give leave to have it put on another man's ground said the queen's counsel there is no question of another man's ground here said the member of the chapter i'm not so sure of that continued mr quickenham it may not be the ground of any one man but if it's the ground of any ten or twenty it's the same thing but then there would be a lawsuit said the vicar it might come to that said the queen's counsel i'm sure you wouldn't have a leg to stand upon said the member of the chapter i don't see that at all said gilmore if the land is common to the parish the marquis of trowbridge cannot give it to a part of the parishioners because he's the lord of the manor for such a purpose i should think he can said mr chamberlain and i'm quite sure he can't said mr quickenham all the same it may be very difficult to prove that he hasn't the right and in the meantime there stands the chapel a fact accomplished if the ground had been bought and the purchasers had wanted a title i think it probable the marquis would never have got his money there can be no doubt that it is very ungentlemanlike said mr chamberlain 
"'There I'm afraid I can't help you,' said Mr. Quickenham. "'Good law is not defined very clearly here in England, "'but good manners have never been defined at all.' "'I don't want any one to help me on such a matter as that,' said Mr. Chamberlain, "'who did not altogether like Mr. Quickenham. "'I dare say not,' said Mr. Quickenham, "'and yet the question may be open to argument. "'A man may do what he likes with his own, "'and can hardly be called ungentlemanlike "'because he gives it away to a person you don't happen to like.' "'I know what we all think about it in Salisbury,' said Mr. Chamberlain. "'It's just possible that you may be a little hypocritical in Salisbury,' said Quickenham. There was nothing else discussed, and nothing else thought of in the vicarage. The first of June had been the day now fixed for the opening of the new chapel, and here they were already in April. Mr. Fenwick was quite of opinion that if the services of Mr. Puddleham's congregation were once commenced in the building, they must be continued there. As long as the thing was not yet accomplished, it might be practicable to stop it, but there could be no stopping it when the full tide of Methodist eloquence should have begun to pour itself from the new pulpit. It would then have been made the house of God, even though not consecrated, and as such it must remain. And now he was becoming sick of the grievance, and wished that it was over. As to going to law with the Marquis on a question of common right, it was a thing that he would not think of doing. The living had come to him from his college, and he had thought it right to let the bursar of St. John's know what was being done. But it was quite clear that the college could not interfere or spend their money on a matter which, though it was parochial, had no reference to their property in the parish. It was not for the college, as patron of the living, to inquire whether certain lands belonged to the Marquis of Trowbridge or to the parish at large, though the vicar, no doubt, as one of the inhabitants of the place, might raise the question at law if he chose to find the money and could find the ground on which to raise it. His old friend the bursar wrote him back a joking letter, recommending him to put more fire into his sermons, and thus to preach his enemy down. "'I have become so sick of this chapel,' the vicar said to his wife that night, "'that I wish the subject might never be mentioned again in the house.' "'You can't be more sick of it than I am,' said his wife. "'What I mean is that I am sick of it as a subject of conversation. "'There it is, and let us make the best of it, as Quickenham says. "'You can't expect anything like sympathy from Richard, you know.' "'I don't want any sympathy. I want simply silence. "'If you'll only make up your mind to take it for granted and to put up with it, "'as you had to do with the frost when the shrubs were killed, "'or with anything that is disagreeable but unavoidable, "'the feeling of unhappiness about it would die away at once. "'One does not grieve at the inevitable. "'But one must be quite sure that it is inevitable. "'There it stands, and nothing that we can do can stop it. "'Charlotte says that she is sure Richard has got something in his head. "'Though he will not sympathise, he will think and contrive and fight.' and half ruin us by his fighting said the husband he fancies the land may be common land and not private property then of course the chapel has no right to be there but who is to have it removed and if i could succeed in doing so what would be said to me for putting down a place of worship after such a fashion as that who could say anything against you frank the truth is it is lord trowbridge who is my enemy here and not the chapel or mr Parlam. I'd have given the spot for the chapel had they wanted it, and had I had the power to give it. I'm annoyed because Lord Trowbridge should know that he had got the better of me. If I can only bring myself to feel, and you too, that there is no better in it, and no worse, I shall be annoyed no longer. Lord Trowbridge cannot really touch me, and could he? I do not know that he would. I know he would. No, my dear, if he suddenly had the power to turn me out of the living, I don't believe he'd do it any more than I would him out of his estate. Men indulge in little injuries who can't afford to be wicked enough for great injustice. My dear, you will do me a great favour, the greatest possible kindness, 
if you'll give up all outer and as far as possible all inner hostility to the chapel oh frank i ask it as a great favour for my peace of mind of course i will there's my darling it shan't make me unhappy any longer what a stupid lot of bricks and mortar that after all are intended for a good purpose to think that i should become a miserable wretch just because this good purpose is carried on outside my own gate were it in my dining-room i ought to bear it without misery i will strive to forget it said his wife and on the next morning which was good friday she walked to church round by the outside gate in order that she might give proof of her intention to keep her promise to her husband her husband walked before her and as she went she looked round at her sister and shuddered and turned up her nose but this was involuntary in the meantime mr quickenham was getting himself ready for his walk to the mill any such investigation as this which he had on hand was much more compatible with his idea of a holiday than attendance for two hours at the church service on easter sunday he would make the sacrifice unless a headache or pressing letters from london or apollo in some other beneficent shape might interfere and save him from the necessity mr quickenham when at home would go to church as seldom as was possible so that he might save himself from being put down as one who neglected public worship perhaps he was about equal to mr george brattle in his religious zeal mr george brattle made a clear compromise with his own conscience one good sunday against a sunday that was not good left him as he thought properly poised in his intended condition of human infirmity it may be doubted whether mr quickenham's mind was equally philosophic on the matter he could hardly tell why he went to church or why he stayed away but he was aware when he went of the presence of some unsatisfactory feeling of imposture on his own part and he was equally alive when he did not go to a sting of conscience in that he was neglecting a duty but george brattle had arranged it all in a manner that was perfectly satisfactory to himself Mr. Quickenham had inquired the way and took the path to the mill along the river. He walked rapidly with his nose in the air as though it was a manifest duty, now that he found himself in the country, to get over as much ground as possible and to refresh his lungs thoroughly. He did not look much as he went at the running river or at the opening buds in the trees and hedges. When he met a rustic loitering on the path, he examined the man unconsciously and could afterwards have described with tolerable accuracy how he was dressed and he had smiled as he had observed the amatory pleasantness of a young couple who had not thought it all necessary to increase the distance between them because of his presence these things he had seen but the stream and the hedges and the twitterings of the birds were as nothing to him as he went he met old mrs brattle making her weary way to church he had not known mrs brattle and did not speak to her but he had felt quite sure that she was the miller's wife standing with his hands in his pockets on the bridge which divided the house from the mill with his pipe in his mouth was old brattle engaged for the moment in saying some word to his daughter fanny who was behind him but she retreated as soon as she saw the stranger and the miller stood his ground waiting to be accosted suspicion keeping his hands deep down in his pockets as though resolved that he would not be tempted to put them forth for the purpose of any friendly greeting the lawyer saluted him by name and then the miller touched his hat thrusting his hand back into his pocket as soon as the ceremony was accomplished. Mr. Quickenham explained that he had come from the vicarage, that he was brother-in-law to Mr. Fenwick and a lawyer. At each of which statements, old Mr. Brattle made a slight projecting motion with his chin, as being a mode of accepting the information slightly better than absolute discourtesy. At the present moment, Mr. Fenwick was out of favour with him, and he was not disposed to open his heart to visitors from the vicarage, then Mr. Quickenham plunged at once into the affair of the day. 
"'You know that chapel they are building, Mr. Brattle, just opposite to the parson's gate?' Mr. Brattle replied that he had heard of the chapel, and had never as yet been up to see it. "'Indeed, but you remember the bit of ground?' yes the miller remembered the ground very well man and boy he had known it for sixty years as far as his mind went he thought it a very good thing that the piece of ground should be put to some useful purpose at last i'm not sure but what you may be right there said the lawyer it's not been of use not to nobody for more than forty years said the miller and before that what did they do with it parson as we had then in bullumpton kept a few sheep ah just so and he would get a bit of feeding off the ground. The miller nodded his head. Was that the vicar just before Mr. Fenwick? asked the lawyer. Not by no means. There was Muster Brandon, who never come here at all, but had a curate who lived away to Hinton. He come after Parson Smallbones. It was Parson Smallbones who kept the sheep, and then there was Muster Threepaway, who was Parson well nigh thirty years afore Muster Fenwick come. He died up at Parsonage House, did Muster Thrupp away? He didn't keep sheep? No, he kept no sheep as ever I heard tell on. He didn't keep much barrin hisself, didn't Mr. Thrupp away. He had never no child, nor yet no wife, nor nothing at all, hadn't Muster Thrupp away. But he was a good man, as didn't go meddlin' with folk. But Parson Smallbones was a bit of a farmer. Aye, aye, Parsons in them days weren't above a bit of farmin'. I weren't much more than a scrap of a boy, but I remember him. He wore a wig and old black gaiters, and knew as well what was his'n and what wasn't, as any parson in Wiltshire. Tithes was tithes then, and parson was cute enough in taking on em. But those sheep of his were his own, I suppose. Whose else would they be, sir? And did he fence them in on that bit of ground? There'd be a boy with them, I'm thinking, sir. There wasn't so much fencing a sheep then as there be now, boys was cheaper in them days just so and the parson wouldn't allow other sheep there muster smallbones mostly took all he could get sir exactly the parsons generally did i believe it was the way in which they followed most accurately the excellent examples set them by the bishops but mr brattle it wasn't in the way of ties that he had this grass for his sheep i can't say how he had it nor yet how muster funwick has the meadows t'other side of the river which he lets to farmer pierce but he do have em and farmer pierce do pay him the rent Gleebland, you know said mr quickenham that's what they calls it said the miller and none of the vicars that came after old smallbones have ever done anything with that bit of ground narrow one on em mr brandon as i tell ye never come nigh the place i don't know as ever i'd seed him it was him as they made bishop afterwards some as away in ireland he had a lord to his uncle then mr threep away he was here ever so long but he didn't mind such things he never owned no sheep and the old woman's cows was let to go on the land as was best and then the boys took to play an opscotch there with a horse or two over it at times and now mr puddleham has it for his preaching maybe sir the lawyers might have a turn at it yet and the miller laughed at his own wit and get more out of it than any former occupant said mr quickenham who would indeed have been very loath to allow his wife's brother-in-law to go into a lawsuit but still felt that a very pretty piece of litigation was about to be thrown away in this matter of mr puddleham's chapel mr quickenham bade farewell to the miller and thought that he saw his way to a case but he was a man very strongly given to accuracy and on his return to the vicarage said no word of his conversation with the miller 
it would have been natural that fenwick should have interrogated him as to his morning's work but the vicar had determined to trouble himself no further about his grievance to say nothing further respecting it to any man not even to allow the remembrance of mr puddleham in his chapel to dwell in his mind and consequently held his peace mrs fenwick was curious enough on the subject but she had made a promise to her husband and would at least endeavour to keep it if her sister should tell her anything unasked that would not be her fault end of chapter forty two